Well, we're in June, and uh, if there's any question as to what month it is, you can just drive up and down streets in most neighborhoods in our county, and you can see some special flags that remind you it is, in fact, June. I've actually had a handful of believers uh, who shared with me that they kind of dread June coming along now that it is a time in which even those who hate the Word of God and don't honor what he says about sexual sin and idolatry. Uh, celebrate it, especially this month with all the uh, transgender flags that you see everywhere. And definitely see them all around my neighborhood. But marry that up this particular year with the fact that there's a whole bunch of legal conversations surrounding abortion and what is supposed to go on with that and the Supreme Court ruling as we wait for the judges of the land to determine whether or not we may or may not continue slaughtering many innocent unborn children. Christians have responded in many ways, and what I've kind of observed as I've talked with many of you and felt out just the way you're feeling about the state of the world today, there's a handful of sentiments that tend to arise. For some, it's apathy. For some, it's, you know what, I just, I can't handle looking up at the horizons, what's going on in the world, it's just too weighty. It's too cumbersome for me. It's too, it's too intense. I, I can't do it. And so putting my head in the ground like an ostrich and just kind of hoping to avoid viewing the things out there, indifference is a simpler way. Others respond with fear. Everything's getting bad. I mean, it's, it seems like it's getting worse and hostilities to the Christian faith increase. And what about my kids? And, 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 and what if these certain things happen in the news cycles? And what, what if the government does X, Y, and Z? And Fear. For others, it's despair. It's just, just a despondency, a, a bit of a burden all the time about the things that they see out there. And so, so be, because they're not going to ostrich their heads in the stand, but they're going to look at the things in the world, it's just every day, it's just anxiety is kind of overtaking. One of the other responses I, I, I see is anger. Anger. Just to always walking around trigger happy, on the edge, just just waiting for a, to pick a fight with someone because you're just so upset with the things that are going on in the world. Perhaps it's all of the above. Our study through Daniel has brought us to a prophecy of bad times. In fact, times that are much worse than what you and I are experiencing right now in our world, anywhere in the world. In fact, a time so bad that it's described as the worst time throughout all of human history for the people of God. An angel is describing to Daniel what will take place after his days. Last week we began Daniel chapter 12. We just covered the first four verses. And I read the first verse, which I'll read to you right now. Take a look at this with me. This is where we started last week. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Now, I'm not going to rehash everything we walked through last week here, but if you had been with us at that time, you might remember that I quickly ran over the character of Michael, and I said, we'll deal with Michael next week. Well, that week has come, and so we're going to ask some questions about why this angel Michael shows up at the beginning of Daniel chapter 12. Because I should say right at the offset, Daniel 12 doesn't tell us why he shows up. It just says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. 
This archangel who's only mentioned in the Bible a handful of times, mostly in Daniel and Revelation, and one other place in Jude. And so today we're going to take a look at Michael. What is it that Michael arises to do? Is it to prevent God's people from enduring trials? No, because they're about to do that. It's going to be a time of real trouble. We dealt with that last week. There will actually be death. There will be suffering that will be a result of this time period that Michael is arising. So he's not standing up to stop the bad things from happening to God's people. What then is he doing? What is the significance of his arising here in Daniel 12? Well, I think that the answer to that question is in Revelation chapter 12. And so today what we're going to do before we return to Daniel again next week is I'm just going to preach through Revelation chapter 12 today. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation 12. We're going to go through all 17 verses. And I'm going to go a little quicker than I would if this was the the book we were focusing on right now. I'm just going to tell you what I think is happening throughout this passage, interpret that a bit, and then uh, next week especially, we're going to see why I think that you needed to know Revelation 12 to get the the clearest view of what the angel was telling Daniel hundreds of years earlier. So go ahead and go to Revelation chapter 12. I'm just going to go ahead and pray for this text uh, that the Lord would help us understand, uh, and then we're going to go through, and I'm going to close with four points of application for us today. Let's pray. Lord, we're about to read a, a challenging passage in many ways. In some ways, it feels very clear. In other ways, difficulties to deal with. Father, we just want to know what we're supposed to do with something like this. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help prevent me from error, uh, help, help the work that I've invested in trying to serve the people that I love here, your people. I hope that to, uh, to be fruitful and that we would be served well by our time this morning in this important passage uh, and that we would live rightly, uh, that we would seek to honor you in the times that we live because of what we read here. And that's a weighty ask, but it is a small ask for a sovereign God. And so that is our plea. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Start with me in in Revelation 12, just the first two verses. And a great sign appeared in heaven. Real pause, quick pause here. John, the apostle who lived with Jesus, grew up alongside Jesus, the beloved disciple, is writing this towards the end of his life. He's endured much persecution. It's probably at this point he's already been boiled in oil alive as a punishment, a persecution for trusting in Christ. He will not recant. He is now on the island of Patmos. He's, he's in, in prison, uh, working the mines there because of his faith. He sees a great vision, and he's describing the vision. This is the part by the time we get here. And a great sign appeared to John in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. I'm not going to give this disclaimer on every verse, but I do want to make the mention. Uh, There's a lot that could be said about this. I'm going to move quickly to what I think the interpretation is of this in order to serve us through Revelation 12 today. This woman represents the people of God, true Israel. And I think we're going to see that even clearer as the text continues. I say true Israel to distinguish between those who actually loved and honored God of the people and those who claim to be in the line of Abraham and in fact hated him, proves that by their actions. This is the faithful remnant church who has remained faithful throughout the ages. Israel is often represented as a woman in the Old Testament, 
and just as the church is represented as a woman in the New Testament. Think bride of Christ. She is said here to be clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. Now, you could, you could spend lots of amazing time studying this. Many commentators think that that's actually a reference to the movement of stars in the heavens, which are what the Magi saw when they saw the star of Christ that brought them to Bethlehem. That's very possible, I think. But we also know, just from reading the Old Testament, that these are heavenly symbols of glory and position, authority. And the 12 stars on her crown represent the 12 tribes of Israel. It's again a reminder, this is a, uh, an image of Israel about to give birth. She was pregnant. And the child, of course, is Jesus Christ. The prophets had long foretold that the Messiah would come forth from Israel. And that's what this woman represents. We're going to see a few connections all the way back to the first book of the Bible a few times today. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where it is prophesied that the woman will give birth to an offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. And again, that doesn't mean that Eve will still be around to give birth to an actual physical child who will do this. This isn't just talking about the individual person, Mary, who gives birth to Jesus. But she is Israelite. She comes from the line of Israel. Israel gives birth to Jesus Christ, literally and figuratively. Galatians 4.4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. I think that's what's in mind here. This is the first sign John sees in this part of the vision. Now he's going to describe the second sign. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So the second part of this vision is that John sees a red dragon. This, of course, and most certainly is Satan, the devil, the great deceiver, the accuser himself. Later in the text, it'll make that very clear. Here, it just introduces the red dragon. Now, some have seen great significance in the numbers of heads, horns, crowns, and how they're distributed amongst each other, because it's not actually labeled here in this way. And we see both in Daniel and the Old Testament in chapter 7. We talked about this a while ago. We see again in Revelation 13, even a greater breakdown of the horns and the heads and all that's being talked about there. And while I suspect that there could be significance in the exact numbers, 10, 7, 7 there, I tend to agree with the scholars who see those as symbolic numbers used to convey his authority and his control over the kingdoms of men, and just how pervasive his influence really is. His tail sweeps down a third of the stars. We're going to unpack that in just a minute, so we'll hold off on that one. But he stands before the woman so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So we have the woman about to give birth, and we have the dragon standing there to destroy the child whom she will bear. And how is his attempt dealt with? Well, it doesn't say. We just know that he will be unsuccessful. His attempt and desire to devour the child will be interrupted, and he will not succeed in devouring the child. Verses 5 through 6 tell us what happens next. She gave birth to a male child 
one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Okay. So Israel succeeds in giving birth to the Messiah, bringing him into the world. In fact, God had preserved a remnant of faithful Israel in the land so that this would happen. This was not just because Israel was so stubborn that they wouldn't give up. God had preserved throughout the ages the nation of Israel so that they could bring into the world the Messiah who will be the Savior of the world. He is the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. The word for rule here in Greek is poimen, and it's the same word that means shepherd. It's used of the great shepherd, all the shepherding analogies. That's what that word means, and it has a couple things in mind. First, he shepherds with an, a rod of iron rather than just a wooden staff that can, that can break and can be destroyed. It can wither over time. It can, uh, eventually, a, might, a ruler, a shepherd might have to get a new one if it rots. A rod of iron speaks to his eternal nature of his shepherding. It will not end. But it also bears in mind a, a bit of judgment and his power in his control, that he will have authority to rule over the nations. He, him, he himself is the king of kings, the only true shepherd. Let me read for you Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, which prophesies, foretells of the coming son of God and how he will actually rule with this rod of iron. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. This speaks of the rule of Jesus Christ that cannot be resisted. And not only is the child not devoured by the dragon, but he takes his rightful place on the throne of God. You see that? He's caught up to God and to his throne. This speaks of Christ's ascension into heaven. So you might notice that in a quick sentence, we have the entirety of Christ's first advent reference. By first advent, that means the first coming of Christ. It's not only referring to the moment of his birth or his teaching, his perfect life and teaching throughout. It's not only talking about his death or his burial or resurrection or just his ascension. It's technically referencing all of those in a single sentence, which is actually quite common in the way that Christ is referenced in prophetic literature. This is talking about that entirety of his first coming, from his birth to ascension. That's why he's, he's caught up to, seat, to sit, sit on the throne of God. And what happens to the woman? The woman fled into the wilderness. She fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. She too then escapes the dragon. The dragon was there to devour the child, didn't mention his, any, his care for the woman. He wanted to kill the child. And when he failed at devouring the child, he turns his attention to the woman. The woman flees into the wilderness, but not just into the wilderness, in which she is to be nourished and where she has a place prepared by God. Make another connection for you again back to Genesis chapter 3, where we see the first sin enter, and man and woman were kicked out of the garden. When they sinned, the garden didn't change, right? We've talked about this before. The garden didn't all of a sudden thunder and lightning, and the, the leaves begin withering, and the animals start attacking each other. No, the garden remained, and the man and the woman were kicked out of the garden. Where? Into the wilderness. That's where they were kicked into. 
out of the garden into the wilderness, and God actually guarded the garden with an angel and a sword in order to keep them from getting back in. Why? Your sin may not enter the holiness of God. That's why. So they're cast out. There is a garden in the midst, and they are now in the wilderness of the world. And the whole story arc of the Bible is how we, through Christ alone, can enter back into the paradise of God out of that wilderness. Here's yet a reminder all over again that while they are in the wilderness, they are being cared for. They've landed at a place to be prepared, that's prepared by God for their nourishment, for their care. It was better for the Israelites in the wilderness than it was for them in Egypt. And even though they didn't get all the, the melons and cucumbers and the, the meats and, the, and, and all of the things that they remembered and fond, uh, fond thinking about Egypt, they were free. They were the people of God in the wilderness, and they were nourished by him there. And it's so common for people, even in that wilderness of nourishment, to look at the other places and think of them as much greener pastures. How long will this take, take uh, place? 1,260 days. 1,260 days. Now, we're going to talk about that 1,260 in a minute when that's broken down again. But this first six verses form a bit of a synopsis, the, the summary of what he's going to unpack now for the rest of the chapter. Verses 7 through 17 are not the parts that come after verse 6. They're the parts that retell what was taking place behind the scenes through those six verses. So let's go back through that now in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Here's that Michael. Here's where we see this archangel Michael show up again. And as I did say last week about him, the only times we see Michael show up in the entirety of Scripture, he's fighting demons. That's all he's doing. He's constantly warring against the demons, arguing against the demons, battling against demons. That's what he does. He is a warrior angel. It's how he operates. And here we see that Michael arises. That's the same language we saw in Daniel. Michael arises. Here, war arose in heaven, and Michael came to meet that war with his mighty angels. So we have a bit of a general kind of angel Michael figure here with his angels fighting against the dragon who seems to be kind of the general type commander figure of his, his angels who fight back. War arises in heaven. So the dragon wanted to devour the child, situated himself to do something in order to stop the coming of this child, but he was attacked by an army of angels and he's defeated. Remember, this is now a war in heaven, and we already saw in the beginning of this chapter that he saw a vision in heaven, the dragon, so now this is going back. Okay, let's unpack that part again. There's that red dragon in heaven, and he's defeated by Michael and his angels. And the result of his defeat, look at the next verse. Look at verse 9 with me. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So what do we see? The defeat of this dragon. He is cast down to earth. Here he is identified clearly as the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. There's no question as who this character is. Is this some random demon? No, this is very evident. In fact, 
this is the only place in Scripture where the term serpent is explicitly applied, the, the serpent from the garden, is explicitly applied to Satan. So if you were to read in the book of Genesis, who's this snake kind of character here? It's Satan. That's why we say it's Satan, because we have Revelation 12 that tells us he is that ancient serpent, the chief deceiver. He's called the devil. He's an accuser. He's been a murderer from the beginning, and he lies. He's thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Consequently, I think that that's what the tail sweeping down the third of the stars, I think that's the same reference point here. I don't think that it means that he's battling and wins against a third. It sounds more like because he's thrown down, the, the, the fallen angels that come with him are also around him as well. I think that's what's taking place in those being thrown down with him. Satan is the serpent that we reminded of from the Garden Eden. And way back then in Genesis 3, his defeat was prophesied. And remember what was said of the serpent then after he deceived Adam and Eve, Eve, and Adam went along with the deception. God pronounces a judgment against him and says that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Before the first coming of Jesus... Satan had real authority on earth. Before the coming of Jesus, Satan could rightly be called the ruler of the world. I brought this to, to your attention many times through the book of Daniel because we've seen the curtain drawn back and seen behind it a handful of times throughout the entirety of Daniel. But Satan had been granted some kind of real and genuine authority in the world to deceive the nations. In fact, we, we see this made very evident when Jesus is tempted by Satan. In Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, Jesus goes where? You remember? Into the wilderness. And while he's in the wilderness being cared for and nourished by God, same kind of uh, idea there, this is what it says. And the devil took him, Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, listen carefully to, to Satan's words here, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. Satan had been granted authority to rule in the world. He had been granted authority and a position to deceive the nations. There was one nation that was called apart to be the people of God. What nation? Israel. That was his nation. All the other nations, it seems, were under the authority of angels and demons, and Satan himself had been given authority to rule for a time. But when Jesus came... He ousted Satan from his seat of authority. Even back in Daniel chapter 7, we see that the beasts that arise out of the sea to take their positions uh, over the earth and their subsequent kingdoms that would rule over the earth, it said there that they were granted the authority to do that for a time. But on Jesus' arrival at his first coming, he ousts Satan from his seat of authority. Satan is removed from his position in the heavens. And when did this happen? at the cross. It happened at the cross. It was after the cross. It was when Jesus is preparing to ascend into heaven after he's raised from the dead that he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Satan had now been cast out. He had now been given that authority in a special and unique way as a result of his death on the cross. This is why Jesus uses this kind of language about him. When Jesus is preparing to head to the cross in John chapter 12, he says this, Jesus' words, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Because he knows what's really happening at the cross. He knows what's actually taking place there. So much that's going down in one moment of time that he will satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf and he will cast Satan out of his position of authority, take that seat. It's an amazing picture. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 tells us a bit of the spiritual reality taking place behind Christ's death. It says this about Jesus. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. I mean, he became human like we are human, that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. When did that happen? At the cross. That's when that victory was secured. That's when he shamed Satan. That's when he nullified his power. Colossians 2.15 says something similar, that at the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Well, the world laughed and mocked. Ha-ha, we had victory over this Christ character, this Jesus of Nazareth. No, in the spiritual world, they knew they were put to open shame, and God triumphed over them in him, his son, Jesus Christ. The cross was a shameful defeat for the devil and his fallen angels. The ruler of the world had been cast out. He had been bound. There remains a future day when Christ will finish off Satan once and for all. That is coming in the future. He will, once and for all, at the end, will release Satan one last time and utterly wipe him out for eternal defeat to never again war against the people of God. But Jesus has already, at the cross, dealt a violent blow against him in his death and resurrection. The text continues of what happens in heaven after this takes place. John watches the dragon fall to earth, and this is what he says happens next. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So heaven rejoices. Praises to God are sung. Why? Because now salvation has come. What's the salvation? The death of Christ on the cross. Now, the authority has been given to him. What's the now after his death, his resurrection? Because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. See, Satan could stand between God and man. In the Old Testament day, prior to Jesus Prior to his death on the cross, Satan could stand between us and God as an accuser. 
and stand there like an attorney before a judge and say, they committed the crimes and this is the punishment due. And he was right. He was right. He was right to say that. Look at their wickedness. Look at what they have done. In fact, we see a picture of this in the book of Job where Satan stands before God in his throne of judgment and God in the judgment seat shouts down to this attorney, have you considered my servant Job? And the accuser goes, yeah, yeah, and he's only, he's only faithful to you because you keep blessing him, but if you take it away, just like the rest, he'll turn from you. That's the whole story of Job plays out in that kind of courtroom drama. Because Satan stood before God, between us and him. But Christ has come. And the right and just punishment due to us all for our sins was leveled against Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus who lived perfectly, who never sinned, who came with a great and glorious eternal plan of redemption, to live perfectly, to go to a cross, to bear the wrath, the punishment of God for our sins. If you're not a believer today, you need to know that. You are a wicked sinner before God. You deserve every bit of accusation that the devil can lay before him on your behalf. But Christ goes to the cross to bear the punishment. So as the accuser stands and goes, I now accuse your people because... And God says, yeah, what? Because the punishment has been dealt. His accusing days are done. And now the accuser has been cast out, thrown down. He has nothing left to accuse. Nothing can stick. There, there, is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What can they say? And Christ takes that seat of authority, and now there is only one mediator between God and man, no longer the accuser, Satan. It is now the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, who stands between God and man and appeals to him on our behalf. And if ever even a whisper of accusation could come to the ears of God, Christ says, that has been paid for. If you're not a believer today, your only hope of forgiveness, the only hope that you have for Christ to go to God on your behalf, to stand between you and him, is by believing in him. I believe Christ. I turn from my sins. I repent of these things that I put hope in. My only hope is in Christ between me and the wrath of God. And now we can have peace with our Father in heaven only through Christ. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And if you do... There is no condemnation for you. There is no hope of accusation from our wicked enemy. I want to read for you from Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And why is it that Satan does not still stand in heaven next to Jesus as a co-attorney so that when the people of God sin, he goes, aha, aha, because all of our sins have been paid for, past, present, and future. If our future sins could still be leveled against us for judgment from God, the accuser would still have his job. He'd be standing there in order to accuse, but his power is gone. And our Christ stands there in his place. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been forgiven eternally for your sins. There is no accusation that can stick. But the dragon, you see, he doesn't take to defeat lightly. 
He's not a good sport. He's furious as he comes down to earth. And, and heaven sings, ha, 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 that accuser's gone from this place. But earth, woe to you. Because now he's in your midst. Verses 13 through 14 say, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he realizes his defeat. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. You see all that's kind of been covered in verse 6 already. I think that's why we see the overlap so clearly. The dragon set his heart to devour the child. He failed, and so he turns in his fury towards the woman. He's going after true Israel. He's going to destroy and smite Israel. And he pursues the woman. But the woman was rescued. She's not devoured. She's given the two wings of the great eagle. That's the same language used back in the Mosaic days, all the way through David's language in the Psalms, about the wings of an eagle given for the rescue of the saints of God. It's a way that God gets his people out of Dodge to protect them and watch over them. It's a supernatural provision and protection for his people. She'll be supernaturally protected by God, even in the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. This this language, time, times, half a time, correlates to the 1260 days. Very very clearly, what I I think that 1260, that time, times, half a time, let's, let's break down that language. What does that mean? It refers to, first, one singular unidentified period of time. A second, multiple unidentified periods of time. And finally, third, another unidentified period of time cut short. It never says that it's one time and then two times. No, one time and 10,000 times for all we know and half a time. It's very important to see this kind of language. And not only this, but I think that this phrase is intended to be taken symbolically, not literally. And the fact that 1260 shows up here and time, times, and half a time. And in Daniel 12, it'll say 1,290 days, and then 1,335 days, just to adequately confuse all of us. I think the fact that all of those different bits of language are used to refer to the same period is evidence that this is highly symbolic, and that's how it's to be taken. Very, very symbolic rather than literally. That we're not supposed to see an event take place and start our calendars. All right, start counting. We'll know what happens next. I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. Christians today or in the future. I think that this is a symbolic period of time. And almost always is when you see this number in the Bible. So this is how I think. My interpretation of this that agrees with many many scholars who come long before me. I think we could say it like this. After a while, following eras of human history, not just one short era, but many more after that, perhaps. The durations of which are known only to God. God will intervene in the trajectory of human history. In fact, whenever that half a time is finished, whenever that point happens, it will appear as though things are continuing on and will continue that way unless God intervenes. Oh, goodness, Lord, if you didn't show up, If the days had not been cut short for the elect, there's no way we would have survived this. 
I think that's what we're supposed to see. But the days of his reign, this dragon will be cut short. Verses 15 through 16 continue. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Now here again, we're reminded the dragon's called the serpent. We're seeing that together on earth. He's almost always referred in a serpent kind of language here. But water is an image many times in prophetic literature of chaos. We talked about this in Daniel, that literally the beasts come out of the sea, that era of chaos. Uh, At the end of Revelation, it'll say the sea is no more because the chaos has been settled Christ has once and for all stood on the, on the lake, on the sea, and said, calm, be still, right? That'll be one final moment of that. Uh, in fact, at the very end of Revelation 12, this same dragon, we're going to see the next verse, is going to be standing on the shores of the sea to call out yet another beast. And so I think that that water imagery, is, is, it's chaos, it's destruction, it's devastation is what's being talked about. In other words, I'm not imagining that what's in mind here is that some Christians will be overcome by a tsunami. I, I, I don't think it's meaning that. I think it's much more symbolic of destruction and chaos. But is it effective? Does it work? No. Because just as God supernaturally provides the wings of an eagle... For the woman to escape into the wilderness, the earth itself opens its mouth and works on behalf of Christ's followers in order to protect us from the enemy's attack. And verse 17 is the final moment. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who, who, who's that? So, we, so, so he's already made uh, an intention against to devour the male child, and he failed. And so he turns his attention to the, the woman, true Israel, and he fails. He's, he's really good at failing. And then he turns his attention to the offspring of the woman, and who are the faithful ones who come from true Israel? The believers, Christians, the church, and that's exactly what it says, to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Brothers and sisters, we are the offspring here. We are those who come from that legacy of faithful believers, Jews who who preceded us, who brought the faith. Jesus said, I came to bring the gospel to the Jews and then to the edges of the world. And we're a part of that. We are those offspring. And the dragon has set his heart to make war against us for this time. I want to close our time today with four points of application. Gotten to the end of Revelation 12. I went way faster than I typically would if we were just going to go through Revelation 12. I had to cut tons out of this right now. But I think that getting an understanding of what John saw in the vision of his day will give us a greater insight into what Daniel saw in the vision of his day. Four points of application. First is this. Expect war. Expect war. The dragon doesn't give up. He is, the word was used multiple times, furious. He is beside himself with rage, hot with rage. He doesn't take defeat and just go, I guess I'm just going to live. He sets 
his heart and mind to destroy true Israel and to destroy the church of God, the offspring. The fight is real. The whole Christian life is a war. We've made note before that when you are born again, you're born again onto a battlefield. In fact, it's incredibly typical for a person to come to saving faith in Christ, experience this, this period of time that's this euphoria, it's just this amazing moment of reverie. I'm forgiven of my sins. Christ died for me. I, I, have, I have received and experienced this love and this grace of God. And I, I'm now embraced by, by his church and I'm learning and the Bible's coming alive to me. And it's not long until it's very common for, for new believers to six months in, a year in, to start to get the smell of blood. And, and, and the fumes from the, the, the bodies and the corpses on the battlefield all around them and they realize the day is still dark. As they look around them, bloodshed still abounds because the spiritual war in many ways for them just began. And it can be heartbreaking. I, 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 man, I, was, I thought everything was just going to be kind of smooth sailing. It had been so great for the last few months. Yeah, yeah, that was a kind uh, moment of, of, of kind of uh, uh, eye of the hurricane moment before you're going to have to go right back to the war and this time in the army of God and not one of his enemies. We are to pray for peace, but get dressed for war. This imagery is used all over Old and New Testament. The world is embroiled in an epic conflict today. It always has been, and it will be until Christ's return, where he will finish the fight. He will finish it as his return. He's not waiting for us to finish it now. And all of mankind today is polarized in this war. There are only two sides. Those who are in the army of God and those who are his enemies. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says, that even believers, before we were friends of God, in the army of God, before we were redeemed from our sins, by his grace, we were enemies of God. There are no conscientious objectors in this war. You're either for him or against him, and that's all that there is. You know, in reading a few days of the Proverbs with my kids, at the end of the night, I spend time with the, the little ones, kind of go through a little comic book Bible together, and then the older ones stay up a little later, and we walk through, uh, just I read through my Bible with them. And if I don't have another passage that's specifically in mind for that day, we do the Proverb of the day. We've been doing this for a while. And several days went by where Solomon, in the Proverbs, was giving warnings to his son about the adulteress, the adulteress, the adultering women. And Bethany says, wow, it, Sounds like the Bible is just constantly warning against women. <laughs> and I was like, well, you make a good note of that, Bethany. It is true that the Bible uses the image of a woman, the adulteress, to warn us of the powerful temptation to sin. But the Bible also uses the image of a woman, wisdom, who is greatly to be desired. And the book of Revelation contains those same two women imagery. There's the bride of Christ, good and holy and pure, and nourished and cared for by God. And then there's the great harlot, the prostitute, the Jezebel, the manifestation of giving in to sinful desire. And like a young man choosing his bride, you can only have one. You can either have the purity of the bride or you can have the adulteress. That's it. Of course, it's not a literal war we face. Even though real blood will be shed, it is a spiritual war. It is one of deception 
strategy, cheating. Daniel 12, 2, last week we said, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And I reminded you back then that while it was going to be real, real death that was going to have to come about, real persecution, actual tribulation, that death was going to be, going to be almost meaningless to the saints because they will receive a resurrection to everlasting life. This isn't just a physical battle for us. Our greatest threat is not in physical death. This last week I posted on our theology chat at our church here a quote that I found from uh, the Reformed commentator Matthew Henry hundreds of years ago. He wrote this, The church of God is in more danger from heretics than from persecutions. And heresies are as certainly from the devil as open force and violence. What he's pinning to there is while this is a war, we ought not just try to think we need to load our ammunition in order to fight it, but this is actually going to be a battle of ideas and of the mind and truth versus error. This month, you and I can just drive all over this county and see churches who claim the name of Christ flying LGBTQ pride flags. We can find churches who claim the name of Christ who right now, this month, are heralding abortion, the merciless slaughter of unborn children as a great societal good that God would want for us to have. There are churches who want to continually submit themselves to world powers that have proven to be the enemy of Christ in every category. And in these things, we see the enemy winning those small battles. You see, because killing Christians is not how he wins. In fact, history has proven that most of the time when Christians are being slaughtered, faithfulness abounds. No, the enemy does not need Christian bloodshed in order to advance his cause. He simply needs to silence the gospel message. He needs to keep us from building the kingdom. It's his greatest hope. And get us to lay down our swords. This is why it is such a serious error when Christian churches live as though there is no war at all. There are many Christian churches today who simply try to avoid the fact that there is a war. They turn their music up loud to drown out the cacophony of spiritual warfare that abounds all around them. They fill their pulpits with small theology and big smiles so you all feel encouraged as you leave. They openly effort to make friends with the world, sometimes saying as much. And many, many, many people are drawn to that kind of church. Why wouldn't they be? They have plenty of amenities. Cruise ships were designed to have more convenient creature comforts than battleships. But one was designed for the amusement of customers while the other was designed to win wars. You need to find a church that is more of a battleship than a cruise liner. And if you're not seeing the war, why not cruise around? But when you see the war, you're going to look for the ship with the guns. You're going to look for the brothers and sisters in your Christ who will actively help you tackle your sin, pin it to the ground so you can kill it before it kills you. 
You don't need more encouragement to go out and be smiling and happy that everything's going great. No, we're at war and people will die. And eternal life is in the balance for those who believe against those who will not. Because this war is so universal, every hill we don't take remains in the grasp of the enemy. There's no power vacuum here. It gets filled quick. Christians continually buy into the lie of neutrality, the lie that it is possible to have a secular government, a secular school system, secular medical institutions, secular arts and entertainment. It is not possible. For such a long time in the West, Christians have sought to accommodate godless society. And in an effort to be more inclusive, they permitted and sometimes celebrated the removal of Christ and God's law from every facet of society. But every institution that does not have the banner of Christ firmly planted in it is under the control of the enemy. And that is a truth that we have turned our back on. Every institution has a God. Every institution will obey that God. And every God that is not the one true God is our enemy. You can either run toward that beast in this war, in the wilderness, or you can resist it. You can run toward the beast or run from it. You can resist the beast or capitulate. If ever the unregenerate world appears to align to God's will, it is the common grace of God. But do not be deceived. And this is a challenge for my brothers and sisters in Christ as we watch the news, see the things that are going out, watch the polarization of politics in our country and people crying out for a new Messiah. Be warned. Loving conservative values that come from a Christian worldview is not the same thing as loving Christ. Christians can easily fall into the lie of neutrality all over again on the other side. If only Republicans were in power, then God would reign. You can't just hand power to those who hate God and assume that things will go well. Brothers and sisters, the only hope for the things in our world to improve is for the name of Christ to be exalted named and claimed, and not for us to set down the sword. You don't have to trust the Bible. Just trust us because we trust the Bible. No. Repent. We must acknowledge that there's a war and prepare the generations that follow us to do the same. And I will repeat this mantra probably for the rest of my ministry days. It's amazing to me how many believers don't see these battlefields are worth dying on. Well, give the world the hill. Who cares? Why, why can't just have, let them have that too? The blood of your grandchildren will cry out and say otherwise. Second, related but different, make peace with war. Make peace with war. Here's what I mean. If you see the wickedness in the world... It results in consternation, fury, rage, despair, the things that I mentioned earlier in the sermon as we got started today. 
you, you must come to a place of contentment in the battle. You must. Why did God put you here? And why did he put you here now? It's what you were made for, to build the kingdom in this day. Your kids were born full well knowing this is what's going on. No angel rushes into the throne room of God. Oh no, God, we let these kids born into this life. Oh no, they were supposed to be born 200 years ago. No, we were made for this day. We were made to fight this battle. We were made to remain faithful now. Somebody had to be alive during this era and remain faithful to Christ throughout it. And we can be certain it is us. Who chose the conditions around you? Who was it that determined that you'd be born in this generation and place? Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? He's not made a mistake in putting you here. The mistake would be for us to forsake our responsibility in, listen, cheerfully building the kingdom at this time. We are not supposed to be the sullen, angry, defeated ones walking around with a storm cloud following overhead. We are the conquerors. We are more than conquerors. Victory is ours. It is certain. There is no possible way for the enemy to win. We must walk with our heads held high, a slight smirk on our face, because we know something they don't. The victory is Christ's, and the days of his enemy are numbered. You know, in the ancient Roman days, when they were trying to find soldiers to advance up the ranks to lead, they had a list of, of uh, um, attributes that they admired in soldiers that would be well to lead. And uh, as historians have found some of these lists, it's been surprising, at least one of the features in there that's been brought up, a good sense of humor. These guys are going to go out to battle. They're going to lose limbs and, and brothers and arms, and they're going to, there's lots of bloodshed and terrible things that happen throughout war, and they're supposed to have a good sense of humor. Why? Because if you get sullen, you get angry, and you get bitter, and all it is is a dark cloud, A, you've got nothing to live and fight for, B, you're probably going to die. We need the same. I was sitting with some brothers in a coffee shop this last week, and I was just sharing my heart. I was really been frustrated about the things of the world, and it's really easy just to be so angry all the time. Whenever I look at the things out in the world, I get frustrated. I was angry at it. Uh, one brother, Eric, he asked me, he says, uh, Rich, what is the opposite of anger? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just angry. <laughs> I don't know what's over there. I'm here. He's like, no, seriously, what's the opposite of anger? Think, think about that right now. What is that? What is the opposite of anger? I know, I know a thesaurus or a dictionary, a kind of list of antonyms is not always perfect in this, but I, I, I literally searched it because I couldn't come up with, like, what's the, not angry? <laughs> what's the opposite of that? Here's, here's, here's some synonyms for anger I found in a quick search. Annoyance, exasperation, irritability, displeasure, resentment. And what's the opposite of anger? Listen to this list. Calmness, composure, level-headedness, peace, Assurance? Which of that list should sound like you're Christians in your life? This should describe the believer. Victory's secured. We're winners. Not by what we've done, because what he has done. It is not possible for us to lose. And even in death we win. We win faster when we die. How do you defeat 
an army like that. Point number three is also related but different. Point number three, be satisfied with God's nourishment, his nourishment. You see, God cares for the church in the wilderness. Do you see that? He's nourishing her for a time, times, and half a time. We must receive this good gift of God. It can be so easy to focus merely on the fact that the dragon is hunting the offspring. Oh, everywhere we look, the offspring are being hunted. But we ought not neglect to celebrate and be grateful for the nourishment. God, thank you. You provided for us. You've, you've given us this day our daily bread. You've given us your word. It's still preserved. We still have it. No matter how many attacks have come, you've still given us this. You provide for us. You give us kids and the next generation we get to love on. And you get, give us a, a body of Christ to do life with. And Lord, you, you have so cared for us. Be satisfied with God's nourishment. Don't, don't neglect to praise and thank him for those things that he's given us. The wilderness is a place of care and of discipline. We must have joy. We must be grateful for God's great care in the fight. And lastly, fourth point, remember we are pursued but not overcome. We are not overcome. The New Testament tells us Satan is powerful, but he is unable to do lasting harm to the church. James 4, 7 says that he will be unsuccessful in his attempts. Here's why. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 John 5, 18 says, We know that everyone that's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. 1 John 5, 4 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. This is a victory march. This day in which we are pursued, we will not be overcome. We are nourished and cared for in this day. That dragon has been thrown down. He is furious, and his fury grows day by day. But the Lord will provide for us because victory has been secured by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude this incredible passage, which we've just barely, barely got to splash in, kind of desire just to soak in this for a few weeks, but just, we just, just got a little sprinkle. I pray, Lord, that we'd be encouraged by it, that we would apply these things, that we would not forget what it is that you provided for us in Jesus. And Lord, please encourage us to live as victors even as we're in the wilderness today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.